Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny. Good to be with you again, friends, as we jump into another edition of the Monster Mash. Now, Professor, which number is this? <laughs> it's just, up there. Just making sure you're staying awake. Eleven billion. Eleven billion. That's right. And I am Grizzly Abner, and I chose Barbarian. Professor Wagstaff, The Mask of the Red Death was my choice for this episode. Which you might have expected to hear come out of my mouth. Yep. <laughs> but I chose uh, Ed Wood, 1994's Ed Wood. And I believe that's where we'll be starting. That is where we will start. Uh, I wanted to, first of all, have you guys seen this movie? Uh, this was my first viewing. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've seen it numerous times. Yeah, as have I. This is one I've wanted to pick for a <clears> while. <throat> I had to get the timing right on it, I guess. I didn't. I honestly wasn't going to do it this close to having picked Matinee, but uh, Grizz had recently watched it, so I decided, well, if he's just watched it, I'll do him a kindness and I'll just pick it now, so there's one generous. movie down. It was very generous. But uh, my initial experience with this, I, I saw it on video. I didn't see it in the theater. Um, this was before the uh, uh, Tim Burton, Johnny Depp fatigue. This is when, what, maybe the second movie they had done together? I think Edward Scissorhands was before this, and then this one. Sounds so, right. Uh, but it's just so quirky that I was drawn, that I it's stuck with me since, and something that I will go back and revisit. It's, it's a biopic, uh, or biopic, whichever way you'd like <laughs> to pronounce it. Biopic. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, Edward. We're doing just kind of initial thoughts on it, or you yeah. want to jump in after? I, for me, it's a conflicted fondness. Mm-hmm. I'll get into that later. Okay. Uh, first viewing, it was fun. Um, it was just really nice to <clears throat> see Johnny Depp before he was Jack Sparrow and became he, Johnny Depp became Jack Sparrow in real yeah. life. And so it was a lot of fun. To go back and see Johnny Depp become a character again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not going to hate on Johnny Depp and sit here and do that, but at the same time, he's just kind of become a cliche now as far yeah. as character actor work goes and people overlooking everyone else because like, oh my God, look what Johnny Depp has done. And he's fine. He's fine. But this was fun to go back and see early Johnny Depp becoming a character. For a long time, I said about Johnny Depp, what I admired about him is that Johnny Depp chose what roles he wanted to do rather wisely. Uh, he was he was a bit picky with them. He wasn't necessarily doing... Uh, 
He wasn't doing speed in movies like that. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't quite that high. He had a few of them that were a little more mainstream. But I always admired what he picked for a while. Sure. And then once the annual Tim Burton, Johnny Depp movies (laughs) came out, I really got tired of what he was doing. And Tim Burton, for that matter, got tired of what he was doing, too. And I begged for years for them to separate and go do things opposite from each other after some of the genius things that they did together so that was that was unfortunate but i think um part of what made him so special back then was the range that he would show within the choices that you're referencing because we've got all these quirky characters but he also was you know in donnie brasco blow Mm -hmm. blow these movies where he could show some really incredible drama Mm -hmm. but then also you know the stuff with burton and and yeah so yeah, there was some really interesting range back there, uh, and add on top of that, his insanely like sex appeal, front of all the magazines back then. It's like not yeah. very often do you have heartthrobs like that doing this kind of range, right? But yeah, um, very true. It's fun to go back and kind of see him in those early stages. So bear with me here. There's there's a few details on this one to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward came out in 1994, directed by Tim Burton, written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who have went on to do numerous other biography scripts. I was 16 when this came out. Mm. Nice. Uh, this is I was starring in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> Liar. Now, this does have a few people in it: uh, Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, Jeffrey Jones, Vincent D'Onofrio, Bill Murray. Lisa Marie, George the Animal Steel, uh, just to name a few. Uh, Bill Murray is so Bill Murray in this movie. So good. And God, he and it's because he's not like starring in this movie. He's supporting cast and he's just peppered in a little bit, but where he's at adds so much. Sure. And and there's I'm not even listing numerous like cameos of people from the original film that are popping up in this from like Plan Nine and some of his other stuff. Um, Rick Baker did makeup work in this and uh, won an Oscar for it. Yep, Howard Shore had a great score, and then it won an Oscar for best makeup. Rick Baker and best supporting actor for Martin Landau playing Bella Lugosi. How funny is it that that won best makeup? Oh yeah, in terms of all the things that he's yeah, done. I yeah. mean it's so understated. I mean, it's genius in in its uh, subtlety, but that that is one of the things that they awarded him an Oscar for. Just kind of surprising for me because it's not that noticeable of a makeup job. Sure. Well, and they basically invented the special effects stuff because of him yeah. in American Werewolf in London, and so it's like it's it does seem feel kind of odd that yeah. they're, they're still doing the the Gimme awards, you know, over ten years yeah. later. So uh, for anybody who's unaware, Ed Wood was. <clears throat> a director back in the 1950s who is credited with being uh, the, one of the worst directors ever. Uh, his movies, he had a basically a ragtag group of misfits who he worked with as his crew. Uh, he made the movies that he wanted to make. Uh, was a one-take guy. Whether or not that take was good or not, it was good enough. Uh, yeah. glib <laughs> would that be a, a proper way to describe him uh, so this movie is that story and really focuses on uh, the relationship that he had with Bela Lugosi who at that time was no longer had been a long time since he had been an A-list celebrity uh, while this is based on the life of Ed Wood 
there are a lot of liberties taken. Like, this is not a true... I feel like this is like an artist's interpretation of Ed Wood's life. Like, there is a lot of true stuff, but there are some other things that weren't quite... Bela Lugosi Jr. had some issues with the portrayal of his father in this. It's horseshit, a lot of it. He said that, uh, number one, his father did not use profanity. That's the biggest note on it. Yeah, uh, his father did not use profanity. And even he feels like Ed Wood took advantage of Bela. A lot of people feel like Ed Wood took advantage of Bela. Because Bela hadn't worked him forever. Bela was broke. Bela was addicted to heroin. Um, and Ed Wood paid him. Look, no one forced Bela to do anything. No one else was giving him money, and Ed was. And Ed treated him like he was... This is my opinions on, on, on the situation. Uh, but I think that... No one else was going to hire Bela, but At Ed all, Wood they did. Weren't. The phone was not ready. Yeah, but Ed Wood did. So people can say he took advantage of Bela all he wants. He put food on Bela's table. Yeah, I don't agree with the second yeah. one as much as the first. The profanities, that's not even really up for debate. Everyone that knew him, even people who have nothing to be to, to gain by being offended by this movie in that regard, all stated like he was an old school gentleman, and he certainly wasn't. You know, referring to Karloff as a cocksucker on the set, or around and they were friends. Else. Yeah, they were friends. They're, the 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 rivalry is has been ginned up by fans and yeah. the media and people writing. And books. it's such a big part of the personality that they give him in the movie was right. the, the, this this chip on his shoulder for Karloff, right? And that's just he was fighting much bigger issues yeah. at that point. But I I do want to clarify that I don't think Edward was exploiting him in a in a gross way. I think that he was. Constantly looking for any way to get his movies made, and he mm-hmm. he got a guy that he liked, that he cared about, and I think that that friendship is what Burton went through with Price, yeah, in a much healthier yes situation. Yeah. But I think that's why he made this movie, right? At its core, it's about the friendship of this yeah. old icon that he liked, and, and I think that that's genuine there. I think that it helped yes. him certainly, but I don't think that he was out to exploit him. I mean, this is at the same time Sinatra was quietly shoveling money in to get him help um, with addiction back then because that was not a thing that anybody knew about, certainly with celebrities. Yeah. I mean, you think about how people barely talk about it now. Yeah. Bela was the first one to publicly check himself into rehab. Yep. And so I I just think that when you look at kind of the whole picture of where Lugosi's life was at at that point – I, I just I, I don't I don't buy that I don't think I can't that help was if, in a if I were in his shoes and this is supposition but if I were in Bela's shoes and had had the life he had as an old man who the phone had not been ringing for a long time I would have been thrilled and I think he was. to be on a set and acting and you he would you would think he would have to be I think by all accounts he was quite fond of Ed for for getting him in front of a camera again so what what is uh, Different about this movie is you're you're not watching Ray, you're not watching Walk the Line. This is made to feel like an Ed Wood movie, right? In a lot of ways, because Johnny Depp's performance is so over the top. Not to the point where it's going to ruin it, but to a point that it does add this level of camp to it that Ed Wood movies are absolutely famous for. And I think that's the tricky part with this movie. I think that's lost on a lot of people. And rightfully so. I mean, they're tuning in to learn about real people. Yes. It's, sometimes it's kind of hard to connect the dots that it's like, no, this is actually kind of a love letter yes. to what they made. And in 1994, it's released in black and white. 
Yeah. Which is another, that's a ballsy decision because I, I understand, like, Clerks is released in black and white because that's all Kevin Smith can afford to shoot it on. I almost didn't watch this because it was black and white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but to get an audience, to get an audience in 94 or, you know, later to watch something that's released in black and white on purpose, that's tricky. Um, I think that some of the casting in this movie was fantastic. I think that uh, George the Animal Steel as Tor Johnson was great Smart. casting. Great. I mean, if you watch Tor's performances and you watch, it's so similar. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And now, and I tend, I try to be nicer the older I get, guys, and not as venomous. But uh, let's get him off the show. There is a reason why Lisa Marie didn't have lines in Mars Attacks. <laughs> she is not a good actress. She is a, a terrible actress. I would rather them have cast Sherry Moon Zombie in this role. Because at least by Lords of Salem, I was like, oh. Oh, Sherry can act. Okay. Uh, Lisa Marie's rough. She was man. playing Vampira, right? Yeah. Because I was going to ask you guys. I was like, I, I haven't seen much stuff with the real Vampira in it. Is she really? Is she that? Like, was the actress playing her bad because she was bad, or is that just Lisa Marie's a bad actress? Lisa Marie's a bad actress. Okay. Because yeah. it was noticed. Like, even Carrie watching it was like, the fuck is this lady's problem? <laughs> if you want, if. There's very little Vampira left that you can watch. Most of that stuff didn't survive, but it's all on YouTube and ready, readily available. But if you were to look at those and watch the delivery that Malia Nurmi gave mm-hmm. as Vampira, it was sultry, it was sexy, it was spooky. Lisa Marie's just a bad actress. Lisa yeah. Marie's delivery is not good, and nope. she's just not. She's yeah, not which good. Burton was with her at the time, oh, yes. right? So oh, yes. I yeah. think he was kind of fulfilling yes. the full circle dream there while making this. It was he, he put her in Planet of the Apes too, didn't he? No, that was when he was with Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, That's who started being in all those uh, movies. Yeah, when he she's was definitely in everything. Gotcha. Yeah, after from there. But <laughs> Lisa Marie, yeah, that was definitely uh, some. Real life Ed Wood bleeding through Tim Burton's relationship as well, and she's casting. also in Sleepy Hollow. She is in there, and that's Elvis's daughter, right? <laughs> I hate you so bad. <laughs> oh, I hate you so bad. <laughs> Got him. So uh, I we won't go beat for beat on I, this one. I, I would like say, to actually. Could we please yeah, go, go for every it. frame, please? Real quick, casting. Um, I am not someone who loves Vincent D'Onofrio. Mm-hmm. I'm just not crazy about him. But when he shows up in good in something i really like to point that out and i just thought he was great as orson wells in this yeah i really yeah enjoyed. and i don't know <laughs> if there's any truth to him actually ever meeting orson wells like that or not uh but it, it's good storytelling i do i don't know there's just a charm about this movie that brings me back to it i don't watch it annually but i certainly come back to it every couple of years and watch it again bill murray, bill murray with just a facial expression Oh, can yeah. crack me up. Well, in they're this movie. they're all very entertaining, but I think part of what brings you back to it is is there's there's sincere fondness for these people and and their efforts. And so, even though this stuff is you know kind of poking fun at some of it, it's not in a mean spirited way; it's in a loving way. Mm-hmm. So it's like it can be kind of a tough pill to swallow at first when you're like, man, you're not really portraying Lugosi correctly, right? But Landau is transformative. Like, you forget that you're watching Martin Landau. You absolutely forget that you're watching Martin Landau. And so, in that aspect, you're like, 
okay, so nobody else is making movies about Bela Lugosi. Right. So it's like I can either fixate on the fact that they're taking some liberties here with the obscenities and the personality, or I can just really appreciate that, you know, we're, we're looking at him again. We're thinking about him. We're, and so there, I think there's just this inherent fondness that is at the core of, of this movie that makes it, like when, especially with the ending, you just walk out of this movie good, feeling good about it. Yeah. yeah. I think that, and, and it's funny too, because there's the tone of the movie, which is kind of whimsical, a little tongue in cheek. Johnny Depp's performance is definitely like this caricature of a guy. But then you have Landau, who is 100% playing a fully fleshed out character that he completely. And I'm not saying Johnny Depp didn't take his job seriously, but I'm saying there was definitely a different approach taken. And that juxtaposition within that movie, I can see why Martin Landau, he won the Oscar for this, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. Which is interesting because I think that's the way it was in real life. Lugosi came from the stage and a massive start to his career. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really ended up in some goofy <clears throat> shit yeah. in, in years that followed, yeah. but he was an accomplished performer. Oh, yeah. And he, even still in his lowest moments, took that very seriously. Yeah. And so I could see kind of that, him bringing that that vibe to the set while you also have, you know, cardboard grass being pushed up for Tor Johnson to pump out of or, you know, guys pointing in the wrong direction in the sky, etc., so I do think it's an interesting relationship that they had. But at the core, they both just love telling stories. And this movie made me want to watch some Ed Wood movies because mm-hmm. I had never watched them before I saw it. And Plan 9, we've covered on the show, Plan 9 is is so bad that it's good. Like I, It's one of those mystery science theater type movies. Like It's so ridiculous, some of the shit that was put in, the dialogue, like... But it's funny. It's, it's it's like watching Troll 2. Yeah. I remember when I watched it, I had heard my whole life about how this is one of the worst movies ever made. And I watched it, and I was like, shit. Here's <laughs> yeah. the thing. I've seen way and, I'm gonna, and I agree, but I'm also going to throw out at least a little bit of a different take in the sense of, and I don't mean this in a hot take, like raise, raising it up in the ranks or anything, but the difference with Plan 9 is enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. Even in its worst, lowest moments, these people love what they're doing. And that's different than something like Troll 2. That guy was an asshole yeah. who thought yeah. he was Orson making, Welles. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Wood knew he didn't have much, and he was making the most with it and having fun. Yeah. And, and so uh, it, while he was a tortured soul in many ways, um, I, I do think that the enthusiasm comes through in those movies because I've watched a few of them. Uh, uh, the, I love Bride of the Monster. Yeah, I think Bride of the Monster is a lot of fun. Orgy of the Dead. Um, I've seen a, a few others, and you know they're they're challenging at times, but they still have that enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And I do think that no matter what you think about this movie, Ed Wood, that is that they tapped into that. Yeah, that is for at sure. the core of it. Bride of the Monster is fun because you're still getting a solid performance out of Bela Lugosi. Uh, I always like Tor Johnson as like a lumbering monster. Oh yeah, and uh, but the the real scene of Bela with the giant octopus is is great. And, <laughs> and it also, I love the way it was shot in this movie. I was going to say for anybody that's ever made a little rinky dink fun movie with friends, you know exactly what yeah. you're watching. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great sequence too. So yeah, so. Like I say, we're not going to go through it beat for beat or anything. We've pretty much given our opinions on it. I like this movie. If you haven't seen this movie, I think you should check out this movie. Even if you don't know who Ed Wood is, you you at least have a 
pedestrian idea of who Bela Lugosi is, at least. Yeah, sure. If you're listening to this show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Watch if you like the movie. idea just in, in movie making in general, especially if you've ever wanted to make one or you've made one yourself – I think it's a really fun double feature to watch Ed Wood first and then Plan Nine yeah. directly after, and just get the real. No, you're product. absolutely right. That's a fun night. And this is Tim Burton when he was still solid, solidly Tim Burton. Yeah, doing what he wanted to yes. do. Do you guys know Martin Landau's daughter was in this? Mm-hmm. I can't remember who she played though. Uh, Loretta King. Mm. So mm. that's the that's the guy that comes in saying she wants to invest. Mm. Oh yeah. I, I'll invest every dime I've got in your your picture to make her the lead. <laughs> yeah, and then Ed Wood loses his woman over it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, her name's Juliet Landau, and the only reason I bring that up is because for those of you who are Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans, she is Drusilla. And I had no idea hmm. all this time that she was Martin Landau's daughter. Nice. Wow. And I'm looking through the cast list, and I'm like... It's a long cast list, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, I had fun with it. I enjoyed it. I'd recommend it as well. Yeah, it's a fun flick. And I, I just want to point out, too, before we exit on this one, I love the ending. I love their approach to the, the playing the movie and the rain and just that whole sequence. Yeah. Is, it's so good. It, there's just so much love in I the I like a period movie. piece, too. Yeah. Especially when, you know, you do it right, which they did with this one. And so I always enjoy that kind of thing, too. So that just adds the, the appeal for me. Yeah, you really, you walk out on a high note with this. Yeah, it was fun. Okay. Well, thank you, Venomous One. Yes, sir. Barbarian, released 2022, written and directed by Zach Krieger, uh, who had mostly done TV work before this, um, starring Georgina Campbell, Bill Skarsgård, Justin Long, Richard Brake, Kate Bosworth, and Sarah Paxton. <laughs> Pretty decent little cast for uh, something that came out of left field for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So this was my second viewing. Uh, Vinny, please tell me this was your first viewing. Oh, this was definitely my first yes. viewing. This was also my second viewing. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. Wow. What a film. Um, this was one, um, I think by the time this decade ends, this will probably be on a lot of top ten lists for the decade. I can see that. I think there's certainly better movies out there. But I think just the fact, as you said, as it came out of left field, the cast, um, it's not my favorite movie, but if you're if you're looking to surprise horror fans, this was pretty good. I'd put it up there with Malignant, in my opinion, and just kind of that way of a surprise, like, what the fuck did I just watch? I think I like this a lot more than Malignant myself. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, not to poo-poo the comparison, I see what you're saying, but I, I, I agree. I think this is only, time is only going to help this movie yeah. because I think it's a lot smarter than people realize when they're watching it the first time. The second time around, I was like, I, I liked this the first time, but I almost liked it better the second time. It's the best kind because yeah. you're not distracted with getting hit over the head with something to where you can kind of get more out of it even days later thinking about it. Venomous, your opening thoughts. It was not what I was anticipating. I knew the name of it. I didn't really know anything else about it, so I just popped online and read like your back of your VHS, you know, of what the movie's about. And I read and I read it and watched it, and it was not at all what I had myself prepared. 
for it to be. Yeah. And I'll get into that more as we get into the movie. Yeah. All right. You want me to hit a quick setup? Oh, yeah. So we have uh, Georgina Campbell's character, Tess, who has traveled to Detroit uh, for a business meeting the next morning, and she's staying at an Airbnb, which, by the way, this is why I don't stay at Airbnbs. It's because of this movie. (laughs) And uh, she gets there. It's nighttime. It's raining. So she doesn't really see the neighborhood that she's driving into. When she gets there, she can't get in. And uh, she's calling the people who own the Airbnb. He's not getting through. And come to find out there's already somebody staying there. And it's uh, Bill Skarsgård playing a character called Keith. I thought it was John Mayer when he first opened the door. (laughs) Body is wild. (laughs) And so this is really, I think this is key to the whole setup. You don't put anybody else in that role, unless it's like Robert England. Like, the fact that she shows up, can't get in, there's already someone staying there, and the guy who fucking played Pennywise is that guy, the guy who's a creep in Castle Rock is playing that guy, it already plays on your preconceived notions of what kind of character he plays. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, good. I honestly hadn't really thought about it other than just when the door popped up and I went, oh, I know him. Yeah. But I, yeah, that's a good point. There's kind of this... It's already embedded in you it's a red from herring. what he's played. Yeah. Yep, it's a perfect red herring because you're already like, oh, fuck, it's him. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> and so um, they kind of do the whole awkward exchange of trying to get a hold of somebody or trying to figure something out. And um, they can't get anything figured out. And he's like, hey, look, you take the bed. I'll sleep on the couch. You can lock the door like... We can just make the best of a bad situation. Come to find out they have some similar interests and things go well. She wakes up in the middle of the night. Her door is open. She goes to wake him up. He's having like night terrors. It's a whole, it's another red herring. Cause you kind of like, what's going to happen now? Surprise. Nothing happens. Right. She goes to her interview the next day. She's a documentarian filmmaker. Um, and when she leaves the house, she sees just how shitty the neighborhood is. Like you're in a bad, bad Detroit neighborhood. And, when she tells the person she's interviewing with, who is the, the producer director, she's like, Oh my God, you're staying there. And already I'm like, why didn't you offer to get her a better place? Right. <laughs> right. If right. Like this famous filmmaker. Okay. Anyways, um, she gets back to the house. Uh, there's a weird basement door open. She follows said basement door, gets down to the basement finds a weird room that has just like a scummy mattress and a VHS camcorder. So that's game over. Yeah, that is. Number one, I'm leaving I, town. I find secret room to start with. I don't even walk into secret room. No. As soon as that door opens, I am the fuck out of there. And you still think that like, oh man, maybe Skarsgård's in on this. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like yeah. maybe he's part of this whole weird network. It's going to become a human trafficking film. You whatever. She gets locked in the basement. Luckily, Skarsgård comes back, and she he comes in, and he gets her out, but he wants to explore further. She's like, no, we have to leave. He's like, well, what did you see? She's like, this is what I saw. He's like, I, she's like, no, we have to leave. And she's like, you do whatever you want, but I'm leaving. And so she's leaving. He goes down. He's exploring, figuring out, and then she kind of hears him scream. I like the fact that up until this point, she has not been damsel in distress. She's not been dingy woman no. victim. She has been 
hyper aware. Everything that in a movie when you go, I wouldn't have drank that fucking wine, you know? Yeah. She doesn't drink the tea that he makes her because she didn't watch him make it. She didn't drink. He let, And he notices and leaves the wine bottle corked mm-hmm. until she comes back because he notices she's... So she's playing it super smart and like just uh, sadly the way women have to live their lives all the time in our current the way things are so she's not making any of those open the door and walk out in your front yard while someone's on the phone threatening to kill you you know what I mean like she's been very smart all the way up until now but she's still a human being so she hears the guy screaming and I still at this point you think that Bill Skarsgård's character could be working her yeah you know But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to interject that. That I did like that she she wasn't the archetype of, of the damsel in distress or, or, or dumb female victim in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, I the first time I watched this, I was really impressed at this point uh, when we're hearing the screaming down the hallway because, I mean, we've had a nice chunk of movie already take place. Um, and for modern horror, when, the, when we've got a story where they're willing to be patient and not show their hand immediately, and then beat you over the head with it, I'm already invested. And so I I really love how they keep playing on your expectations and kind of going nowhere with some of it, um, and their interactions and kind of building up the characters um, for ultimately what's going to be a a different movie, per Mm -hmm. se. Um, But I can remember very vividly the first time watching this, being like, man, I love that. I, I don't know where we're going at this point. Yeah, it's very suspenseful. So she goes back in. As you said, she's human. She mm-hmm. is concerned with this person. I think any of us sitting at this table probably would have done that. Goes back in. <laughs> goes to the basement. Especially if they've been kind to me. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> now not only do we have weird room with bed and VHS camcorder, we now have weird tunnels. And you can still hear Skarsgård making noises down there. And so against... Like, you can tell very much against her better judgment. She decides to try to go help this other human being. Finds him in the dark. And is like, you know, there, there's a, this whole exchange. We can't go this way. The thing is that way. But no, if we go that way, we can't. We don't know where that goes, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, giant naked monster woman with swinging boobs runs into the light and camera shot, grabs Bill Skarsgård, bashes his head against the stone wall, and we fade to black. It is brutal. It's unreal. It is so brutal. I mean, beyond the startling aspect of, of the, the emergence of the attacker, then the violence. It's like, holy shit, this movie's been so restrained, and now we're just letting it fly. And then yeah. it's black. Yeah. It's a hell of a first act. What did you think of that reveal, Vinny? It's complicated. <laughs> it's weird. It's complicated. Does it involve being horny? Yes. Uh... <laughs> I don't know where I truly stand with this movie yet. That's okay. And, I didn't even and, the, and, the, and the detractions that I'm going to give for it is probably more me and going into it with an expectation. I really had myself girded to get into a torture porn mm-hmm. hostage situation, probably rapey scenario so like i really was like ah fuck here we go you know so the whole time i'm watching it's just like ah here we go here we 
we go. You know, it just keeps building towards exactly what they want me to think it is, you know. And uh, then it takes that whole turn where they go down there. And again, I'm still like, oh, man, he's, he's fucking with her, you know. He's fucking with her. So then the reveal happens and I with, with the woman. And this is the point where it's the same feeling that I got from The Descent. Mm-hmm. Where The Descent just had me claustrophobic as fuck, which it's supposed to. Uh, and then once they showed the creatures... I lost a lot of that tension because now it was a creature feature and it was more fantasy. I had the same reaction to that reveal. I wasn't as tense anymore because now this has become a creature feature and fantasy. So it kind of... I don't want to say it was a detriment. It just wasn't the flavor that I had mentally prepared for. So it kind of... I don't know. It's it just it's just complicated. So sure. that revealed to me it was like, oh, this is a creature workshop makeup. You know what I mean? Sure. And so I didn't feel like I was in a real world situation anymore because it was a monster. Okay. Okay. Well, once we fade to black, we start a whole new movie. Yes. And I was confused as fuck for about 45 <laughs> seconds. Now we meet Justin Long driving along, I'm assuming whatever a1a are out there on on the hollywood coast or the la coast pacific coast highway yeah and uh in his convertible having a great but now he's talking to his agent and it gets a little bit of an alarming phone call it's an alarming phone call (laughs) in that there are some accusations of sexual assault against him and what i love too is we just we don't know any of these characters like Mm. we just get the backstory that we pick up through their conversations like Tess who shows up, she's clearly like fighting with a significant other because he keeps trying to call her and she doesn't answer. We don't get any more on that. Yeah, it's like movies from 30 years ago where they treated adults like adults. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> it really is. Skarsgård claims to be this guy who, who was important in starting some influential art group or jazz group. And, and we just have to take his word on that. <laughs> and now Justin Long, we have to assume is a very famous person. Uh, for acting, and he's going to lose this show that he's a part of, and he's very upset, and then he goes and he meets with his uh, accountant, and the accountant's like, I've got bad news for you. Like, you know, you're going to be very broke very fast if you don't do some things. And he's like, well, A, your house in L.A. is very expensive, your cars, etc. He's like, what about my Michigan properties? Like, he's trying to sell, like, his, you know, ranch homes that he rents to people in Michigan. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, that'll buy you a month, maybe. And so now, Justin Long tries to get out of town. After, uh, and then at the end of that, he's like, oh, and by the way, we're dropping you from our firm. Yes, by the way. We, we don't want to be associated we with We will not be representing you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he goes to Michigan. <clears throat> we have a very, we get a very douchebaggy night out with one of his friends. But he gets to his, he gets to the place, and it's the place. Well, and, and not only, because at first... <clears throat> You're with it because he's your he's your point of reference, and what he says is your only point of reference. And the allegations are bullshit. This is fucked up. And then he's out with his homeboy, and his homeboy's like, "Man, if you tell me this is bullshit, I'm gonna believe you. it's bullshit. Tell me what happened." It gets so. He's slimy. like, "She didn't just say no. She didn't say no, did she?" He's like, "Well, like at first." 
but I can be very convincing. And it was like, ooh, ooh, gross. Yeah. yeah. Gross. So, yeah, now you do turn against him. Yeah. You're like, okay, yeah, fuck this guy. So he's the owner of the Airbnb. Our house on Barbary yeah. Street. Um, and he gets there, and he notices people's stuff is there, and he's very mad. And you already start to, like, dislike him then, because mm-hmm. he's just a douchebag in the way that he handles things. Um, and, yeah, he wakes up, and then he tries to call the girl. Mm, drunk. Drunk. Trying to say, hey. After his lawyers told him, do not have any contact. Do not do that. And he's trying to straighten things out. She doesn't answer, thankfully. It's almost like he doesn't know how to, to listen to what he's told. <laughs> yeah, yeah, weird. It's like people with money and power. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't get it. Um, so the next morning he wakes up very hungover. Continues to notice people stuffing in this house. And so he's trying to put it up on the real estate market. And it's almost like a little 80s everybody's working for the weekend montage. Like he's just checking things out. He's trying to figure out how he can sell it, how much he can get for it. He goes into the basement and rather than having dread and fear, like any of us, he goes, Oh sweet. More square footage to list for the listing. (laughs) Yeah. Which is hilarious. That cracked me up so much more the second time around that he was so dense. And so he's just cruising through these, Torture tunnels. With a tape measure. With a tape measure. All of the red flags, like those crate-sized cages, that he just does not register any fear in him whatsoever. And have we had the flashback at this point yet? I don't think so. Okay. And so, of course, now, does he find Tess first? He finds that room with the breastfeeding video. Yeah. Yeah, and Tess is in there. And I think the creature finds him, can find Tess him. is in like a pit. Yeah. That he gets basically thrown he into. He gets thrown in. The monster comes in and is trying to bottle feed them. And Tess is like, no, you need to drink this milk. And he's like, I'm not fucking drinking that. He's like going nuts. He's, she's like, lower your voice and drink the milk. <laughs> like, Because this thing is trying to be maternal. This thing is trying to mother these things, these people that she has found. It's around that time we get to the flashback. Richard Brake is some old creep living in that neighborhood. And it's a flourishing neighborhood. Yeah, it looks in nice. In the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, because they're talking about the Reagan administration on yes. the radio when he gets in his vehicle. And they're, then they, you know, then he finds out his neighbors are talking about moving, and he's like, I'll never leave here, you know. And uh, and also, too, talking about tricking things in your brain. The moment you see Richard Brake on screen, you're like, yep, he's a bad guy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he's at the store. He's talking to this clerk about buying things because his wife is going to be having a home birth. And again, it's not clearly spelled out for you. It's not until later when when uh, uh, Justin Long is running from this thing that he finds an old the old man and finds these VHS tapes, and you just assume that that indeed was his rape room. Yeah, and he had these women birthing children at home. And then through multiple generations of incest, you get the current mother creature that we have. Does that cover it pretty well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, essentially then, we just get uh, a whole escape sequence. Uh, Richard Brake kills himself. Yeah, because Justin Long tells him... The cops are coming. Places place is going to be swarming cops in no time. You're caught, blah, blah, blah. And he blows his head off. Yeah, that's it. And uh, we just get this montage of... Justin Long and the girl trying to leave and um, this homeless guy that had scared her previously kind of giving them instructions on where to go to get away and to meet him at this place. There's a period where she 
encounters the police, and the police don't believe her. They think she's a crackhead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because she's dirty and soaking wet and in that neighborhood. Yeah. Right. And so they finally escape to this place, and the creature finds them there. Anything to say before our final sequence? Not a whole lot to say. Um, The only thing that I want to make sure I add into what we've covered so far is the element of suspense that is explored in the second act when we get Justin Long back at his home. Um, Because it's kind of like that classic idea that Hitchcock always mentioned of put a bomb under the table and let the audience know, but none of the characters. Mm. And so that's kind of what's going on with that whole situation. We have watched what unfolded. We know that that's their belongings, but the character on screen does not. And so now we're we're reinventing the suspense all over again because it's it's threaded through him. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was a really neat way to ramp it right back up, oh, even yeah. though we'd already done so and released that energy earlier. I think that it really scooted the movie along in the middle. I was looking at the counter and going, man, we're this far into it. It was like, man, things are going to get really fucked up. They're, they're saving this to get really fucked up in the last few minutes. I don't feel like we ever really get to where I thought we were headed. And again, that's preconceived notions. It's no fault of the filmmakers. That's all on me. But I just, I kept waiting on it to get really grisly. And it never really does. Yeah, they don't make you watch which on the VHS tapes Mm-mm. with Richard Brake. And so I think that was a nice touch because like, the implied is often that's scarier. Enough. Yep. I think this is where it plays in that this guy came from TV. Yeah. he's He's not leaning into the exploits. It's about dragging this story out in a suspenseful way yeah and it's a tight 90 if not shorter yeah um final act we're at this abandoned factory because that's just what detroit is right and so <laughs> abandoned y'all see robocop yeah right <laughs> and um we get this final showdown and uh justin long who we we think is actually turned around just a little bit to look out for tess ends up throwing her under the bus almost quite literally <laughs> Pushing her like off of this thing so that the mother creature will try to save her. Um, and then we get some sweet vindication as they are almost getting away, and that the mother creature grabs Justin Long by the head and rips his head in half. How did that thing survive that fall for starters? It's not real, I know that, <laughs> but we've been fairly realistic up until now. I guess you guys don't know the power of incest. <laughs> Some kind of strength, I believe, is uh, <laughs> yes. inferred. If, yeah, I just explained that to someone the other day. Um, <laughs> and so, our final ending, Tess has a gun, doesn't she? It's the gun that was Richard Brakes that yes. Justin Long had stolen. That's yeah. right. And we just kind of fade to black after the shooting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she yeah. blows the mother creature away. and That's it. Staggers away. And now this poor girl has to escape Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've taken care of one threat. So that's Barbarian. Uh, I rewatched it just out of leisure and I thought, ooh, let's talk about that one. So there it is. Thank you for coming to my book report. <laughs> um, we've covered uh, the documentary Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue in the mm-hmm. past, um, where we kind of explore generational fears. And I think that there's a lot more going on with this than. It, it spells out that yeah. I think when you watch this, maybe through the lens of 20 years later might be more apparent. Um, and I'm not in any way saying that this is the point of the filmmaker or this story. Cause I, I get annoyed when podcasts overreach on what a movie's about. That's not what I'm saying, but I do think there are elements that are kind of uh, relevant to now with 
um, watching these former neighborhoods that thrived for decades just crumbling, and no one's doing anything about it, and, and the people that are still in those neighborhoods are just getting through it. Um, but it also is leaving room for things to get worse than the rest of us realize. There's yeah. this disconnect from that, which I think is stemming into some of that. I also thought there was an interesting tie-in, and this may be just coincidental, with kind of the Me Too movement and the idea of um, allegations and how to respond. And then we have this guy 20 minutes later with his life on the line being told the only way you can survive this is to shut the hell up. You don't get to say anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that that's tying into what he's going through professionally out in the real world. Oh yeah. Um, But again, I don't think that's the point of the movie. I just think that they're, they're kind of tapping into these little things. And then uh, as we referenced, you have uh, a woman of color being ignored by police and you immediately are stressed when she approaches him because you're like, where's this headed when it's not a normal interaction from the jump. And so I, I feel like there's just a lot of really smart moves and some of it is just misdirects, mm-hmm. but I think that it's a, a really a pretty sharp movie in that regard where it's kind of playing into some modern things that are on people's radars without cracking you over the head with it. Yeah. You raised a couple of things that I didn't think about. <clears throat> and, it, and it portrays uh, white men as terrible. Mm-hmm. Richard Brake is terrible. Yeah. Justin Long is terrible. Justin Long is terrible. And Bill Skarsgård is intentionally set up for you to think he's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't hear his music. He may have been terrible. <laughs> yeah, true. Body is wandering. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and I, I just don't trust white people making jazz if he was part of doing jazz. Amen. For sure. So, all right. Well, Barbarian, I definitely recommend it. Uh, if you listen to this and got all the spoilers, sorry about that, but still watch it. It's fun. I do think that it's it's one that gets better. Because I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. I will have to see it another time to make a full assessment of it. I'm not crazy about it where we sit right now. But again, I think that is because of the expectation that I had. And the expectation I had is not even something that I would have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and and because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be and went that different direction, uh, didn't set right with me. But I think I need to visit it again down the line. That's for a while. It's nope. pretty unorthodox, so I, I totally get yeah. the, the initial reactions to it. Yeah. Okay. Wrapping up. Professor. Moving on to the final one, my choice, The Mask of the Red Death, released in 1964. Another one from Roger Corman and his string of AIP, uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, who wrote this one as well, starring Vincent Price, Hazel Court, Jane Asher, David Weston, Patrick McGee, Nigel Green, a pretty powerful score from David Lee and edited by Nicholas Rogue, who would go on to direct some pretty notable horror movies like Don't Look Now in the 70s, but he was kind of getting his uh, early beginnings here. I think that um, it's an interesting element, too, with the names I just listed off. Most of these people are, are British, um, and it was a British production to save money, as you frequently have with Roger Corman yes. for varying reasons. Uh, landed over there, so you have a lot of different people involved with this. Um, before we get into anything... Uh, history with this movie Grizz second viewing has always been one of my favorite Vincent Price movies nice I've, I've seen it growing up Vincent Price was always on in our house my dad was a fan that's why I'm named what I'm named very good yeah this is one that um, I picked because I think that it's way more intellectual horror than most of the movies that the people involved with were known mm-hmm. for making absolutely um, I also 
I I think this is maybe my third viewing. This isn't one you just put on for for the camp fun, like you would have a lot with Vincent Price and Corman for that matter. Um, But I watched this during the pandemic, and it it was actually kind of a profound experience for me in gathering things that were going on outside. Mm -hmm. And don't worry, I'm not going to make this all super political or hot button issues. But there were some interesting elements that were timeless that I realized while watching it. Oh yeah. so I'm gonna try not and go to go beat for beat on this because it can get a little tricky with all the names and, and plot points. But um, it's set in medieval Italy, in the countryside. We open the movie with a woman out walking, picking, and she encounters a cloaked red man sitting next to a tree, um, who we will go on to learn is playing Death, uh, the uh, the red red Death, uh, basically like the plague, um, and he gets out a white rose trickles blood onto it, turns it red, and tells her, basically, it's coming to your town. Your day of deliverance is upon you. We then head to, yes, exactly. Um, We head to Vincent Price character, uh, Prince Prospero, or as I like to remember, sounds like Ross Perot, (laughs) for my Midwestern ass. Um, And he is a Satanist. He has a village that he is ruling that he comes through. um, And immediately, you know, being well-to-do and above all of them is just the worst world-class prick yeah he is uh you know quickly within the scene that we first have him is forcing a young girl named francesca to pick between her lover and her father which one gets to live i mean this is pretty quickly into his uh arrival on screen while this is going on the old woman that we open the movie with is just screaming in agony um, and he goes over to see what's going on, and it is the Red Death, which is blood coming out of the pores of the skin. He orders the village burned. But he takes Francesca, her lover, and her father up to the castle, as well as the noble society. So he burns the village and takes basically the wealth and gets them all up protected in his castle to sequester them. Kind of thoughts on that opening? Get you not liking him right off the bat. It's pretty delicious, Vincent Price. It is. Yeah. And this, I think it's interesting that uh, we're talking about Ed Wood in the same episode that we're talking about Roger Corman. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Roger Corman makes a much more quality picture than Ed Wood ever did. Yeah, uh, by miles. But the same spirit. But the spirit's there of do it under budget, do it quickly. Corman was a master of that, but this does not come off in any way as something that's low budget. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's British. They weren't putting up with his shit. They weren't doing the pace. We're no, no, no. <laughs> like we're making a quality movie, and inadvertently, this is his best directed movie. This in is, my opinion, this is top notch, Roger Corman product product for I, sure. there's other ones i would rather watch more often but i think this is his best direction yes this i mean just the sets the costuming everything in this movie looks like a top tier production yeah mm-hmm. so we get everybody up to the castle um where we basically are enjoying the, you know, basically the, the wealth that they can afford to be insulated with up there the decadence and debauchery yes and so um, we introduce some other characters, some of which I'm pretty sure were created for the movie to help 
kind of pad the runtime. We have Juliana, uh, his companion, who wants to be a part of the satanic cult that we quickly get to know in that regard. Uh, we also have an interesting choice with uh, two little people dancers, mm-hmm. um, Hop Toad and Esmeralda. Um, one of them is played just by a child. Yeah, with dubbed over voice. Yes. Which yeah. is a very odd choice unless they're just like, well, we can't find an attractive well, woman, I, little person. I looked into this and read an interview with Corman. They tried people out and couldn't. They couldn't get anybody that that just worked out for the parts. Hmm. They went with a kid, but it's awkward. It's the one and only element of yeah. this movie where I'm just like, this was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. it's it's distracting. Um, they have a whole little side plot there where during the dance they make a boo boo, knock over shit, make a mess, and. It seeks out revenge, but to be perfectly honest, I think this was all manufactured just to help the runtime. It's yeah. it's really not pertinent to the overall plan with this. Uh, meanwhile, we have um, the lover and the father of Francesca who are being made to train for combat, and it's basically going to be like you know the Romans did with entertainment for right. them fighting to the death. Um, they're not having it. Um, you also have an interesting element with the girl Francesca being kind of really taken care of and there's a softness that's being devoted to her kind of grooming her for the environment and and price having this interesting relationship um which spoiler alert i think is one of the most dynamic parts of this whole story Mm -hmm. is their relationship yeah which i'm sure most people would agree sure um we get into some of the more entertaining elements with the um father and the boyfriend escaping which uh, getting the key given and getting them out of there with kind of like the jailbreak, which is nice entertainment breaks with that, which ultimately results in one being executed at their feast and the other being banished to go out and basically die with the plague. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are being used to show the complete disparity uh, from the wealthy to the peasants yeah. um, and how they're just completely out of touch with having to worry about anything up here. Um Things really ramp up when we get to the the mask ball. Do you guys have anything you want to add to this kind of cast of characters yep, going that's on? So far. No. Okay. Um, so so really, the the meat of this movie is from here on out. When when we've got a mask ball, we have um, Juliana uh, in her final initiation. She has a, a really interesting piece of filmmaking that they do with her hallucinations, mm-hmm. um, where she's being stabbed. Uh, this is after earlier with the marking that she's got carved into her chest. I mean, there's there's almost this kind of sleaze element to her devotion to wanting to be into it. Um, Corman, the only thing that drives me nuts with him is everything is phallic. Even when you talk to him about the movies, everything was phallic, including the knives that are stabbing her. Uh, but when she comes out of it, she's killed by a falcon in a particularly gruesome mm-hmm. yeah. sequence. Um the thing that I mentioned earlier uh, with Hop Toad having his revenge on the person Alfredo that had harmed the girl and <laughs> resets him there. on fire, yeah, like a pinata, burning pinata, kills him with all that fettuccine. <laughs> yeah, it's like what would have been cool if they did in Trading Places on the Train, but I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it really gets neat when the red cloaked figure arrives at the ball. Yeah, and this is where the movie I think becomes special in its approach um everyone continues to keep dancing but they've died they're basically reanimated mm-hmm. through his presence um and prospero wants to know who is that yeah who is that in the red robe who is that 
and it ends up being him. Prospero. Um, now, I, I think that with this, there's a lot of things that if you want to take from it, you can. Um, but I, I don't think the reveal of his face is, is particularly important to the narrative. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you want to make things out of it, I think is the interesting element of that. Um, but he is quickly killed by him. Um, he said, you know, you've been dead for a long time. But Your soul has been dead for a long time. The, uh, the interesting thing is, is there's this kind of redemption with Francesca mm-hmm. on her behalf. Um, also, and I skipped over it because it, because he I gives mean, her the chance to escape, right? Yeah, yeah. And he he's basically speaking up to spare her yeah. in that last moment. And something I did forget to mention is at one point he looks down on the village and has people killed that are begging for help, but he mm-hmm. spares the child. There's still humanity in this guy, even though he's the worst. Yeah, and that is what she sees. Who and she continues to defend her Christianity. He continues to defend being a Satanist. And they have their own stances on this, but there's this connection going on through the movie. And I'm, I'll be honest, part of the reason I picked this is because I was interested to hear Grizz's thoughts on this mm-hmm. and his background in theology. But I, I, I think that I love how Price is so loaded in his performance, but there's no ham no. In, in those moments. And I don't think he gets fully enough credit for how that kind of plays out towards the end, because he was very capable of being an excellent actor. He loved leaning into the ham. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that's a really interesting um, moment. I think the whole movie hinges on it and we can go more into the kind of details of it, but I'll just say after that, we then go out to all of the different cloaked uh, versions of death that out in the, the countryside that are, um, exhausted mm-hmm. from from the casualties they're taking. Uh, I'll just list them off uh, from what I jotted down here. We already know Red Death, but white for tuberculosis, yellow fever. Uh, scurvy was an orange, cholera blue, influenza violet, bubonic plague in the black, and they are speaking of the day's totals. And it closes out um, with Latin for uh, thus passes the glory of the world. And it's... Uh, it just it hits you quick, mm-hmm. bam, 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 all through the last act. It's and I, interesting it's, that you watch that through the pandemic as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. And unintentionally, I'd seen it before, sure. but I was. These sets came out. Um, Shout Factory put out where they had old local television where Vincent Price did a thing in Iowa where he introduced and sent out outros for mm. movies, and they put it on the Blu-ray. And so I was working my way through the collection. And I watched that one, and it just blew my mind. Because I was like, holy shit, I'm watching a lot of this happen right now, just in very different terms and way lower stakes mm-hmm. uh, at that point when I saw right. the movie. But there was interesting parallels where people were just completely out of touch out of touch with their entitlement. Oh, yeah. And so it was a really interesting watch for that point. So I'd been looking forward to uh, covering on the podcast, but I also wanted to distance ourselves a little bit from – those moments when people couldn't have rational conversations without getting Heated. weird with each other. Yeah. But yeah, let's dive into some of the, 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 the meaning of this stuff. Yeah. There's that line too, at the end where it says death has no God. And it's like plague, you know, the, these different deaths come in and it's like, it doesn't matter what religion or beliefs or anything that your philosophy that you have. It's like death is death and it's going to happen. Uh, whether you're devoted to this or that or the other, and, and I, I like that at the end. Uh, I did also like seeing all the the various robed figures. Um, it it kind of 
from the beginning and then tying it back to that at the end, it gave it a little bit of a fun full core kind of feel, mm-hmm. um, as well. And so, yeah, I really enjoy the film. And I think it's, it's interesting too, that the, the, the wealth just doesn't matter. Nope. It, it leans in exactly what you're saying. It's, it's not only what religion that you're devoted to in the end, death is the equalizer. Well, and that's the thing too, because for some people, money is God. Yeah. You know what I mean? Certainly. Um, and so, I mean, that even goes back to themes that are used in The Exorcist between you've got the poor priest whose mother is dying, um, but he can't do anything about that. And if he had gone into like law or something like that, he could afford to give her a nice place to live. But then now you have Reagan's mother, who's a wealthy actress, and she can't do anything with her money to save her daughter. Sure. And so. Yeah. And this is the ultimate example. He literally takes all the rich people up to his castle to say, we don't have to worry about that. And then he, they can't figure out how in the hell did it get in here? Yeah. We like, still have to deal with it. Takes them in, but then treats them like absolute shit and circus animals while he's, while they're guests. Yeah. And he's keeping them all sparing their lives, but get down on your feet, act like you're a fuck, get on your hands and knees, act like you're a fucking hog. Do yeah. it. Do it now. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's demeaning and degrading. He, it, and you're right. It's not as a, uh, mustache twirling villain as price can get in some of his other movies way more calm and sadistic but this is this is less of a cartoon and and he is a fucking hateable character in this Mm -hmm. movie an absolutely hateable character yeah does it well yeah yeah but it's interesting too because you have people coming from their different belief systems and how they've carried themselves in their society and the equalizer still just clears right through there yeah, and it's no and it's an interesting reflection on Poe, who I I may be wrong on this, but I think he was dealing with maybe his wife or a relative who had TB when he wrote this, okay, and kind of being trapped with it. He also had a big ass head. There's that. Um, call back, <laughs> by those days standards. <laughs> call call back to uh, incest also uh, from earlier in the episode. Now he he had a very just obsessively grim and bleak outlook on things and it poured into his stories, but that's why they were so good. But I think this is right up there as, as some of the bleakest stuff that he ever put to page. And I think that it's a perfect adaptation. Yeah. I think that they recognized where they needed to add some, uh, you know, unfortunately with a, a child playing a little person, but outside of that, they, they really just hit all the marks perfectly. And I think captured, his tone as well as anybody ever has. I agree. Uh, the last thing I'll add is that this was a really fun watch this time around for me because I had just finished watching uh, the new Netflix Mike Flanagan series, The Fall mm. of the House of Usher. Which is oh. also... Yeah, go ahead. It's legit. No, it's yeah. great. Uh, and what they did very in a very cool way with that was that it, it's the story of The Fall of the House of Usher, but each episode is also kind of a small vignette of a different Poe story. Cool. I haven't watched it yet. And so the second episode in the fall of the house of Usher is the mask of the red death. Hmm. Cool. And awesome. So, I'm looking forward to it. I need to watch it soon. And it's a, mask- I've heard good things. It's about a masquerade it. ball. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. So it was really fun to watch this cool. a week after I watched the fall of the house of the Usher. Even better. Yeah. That, and that particular story I think is his other really kind of intellectual angle mm-hmm. because that's uh, Corman's version of that isn't leaning into a lot of the exploits that he was really good for. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a pretty smart movie and I think so is this. I definitely say if you're trying to, if you're trying to expand your, your palette or whatever in horror, that this is a great 
uh, Corman thing to familiarize yourself with. If you're not familiar with Corman works, I would definitely recommend this one. Uh, definitely a great one for Vincent Price to look at. And also what uh, made in the 60s, a great, a great decade representation of the type of horror that was being produced during that time as well. I th- and I agree. I think this is uh, some of Corman's best work. And it lingers because I think with any good piece of intellectual horror, you're not, there, it's not predicated on jumps. Yeah. It's the quiet moments four or five days later when you're like, oh yeah, death, uh, inescapable, no matter what I do. Doesn't matter how. And call back to Bergman with yeah. Seventh Sign. Which Harvey they, Bergman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they he actually delayed the release of this because he was worried about being accused of that. And he said, which I realize is funny for an, an adaptation of a story that was written the, the century prior, but the similarities to Walking the Countryside. Mm-hmm. He, he gave it a little bit of room because this was originally going to be one of the first he did. Oh, cool. And then it ended up just being, okay, now I'm not worried about it because we've made this, this, and this, and this is just the next one in the yeah. series. But yeah, very true. Good yeah. call back to that. Okay. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's not for the passing Vincent Price fan. Uh, this would be an early example, perhaps, of elevated horror. Sure. <laughs> as we throw it around today, but I think it's a great movie. And if you're a fan of horror, you should check it out. Yeah. I'm snarky. I like to throw it in there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll wrap it up. Another edition of the Midwest Monsters Podcast, Monster Mash. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner. Been joined by Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Stay scary. <laughs>